Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by The Lancet Neurology's Deputy Editor, Elena Becker-Barroso. Elena, welcome. Some of you may recognise Elena's voice because we have done the occasional podcast before, most notably a couple of years ago when Elena broadcasted to you in Spanish for a Latin American issue of The Lancet. But anyway, we're definitely going to talk in English today. Is that okay, Elena? Well, it's not the optimal option, but what can I do? Elena, let's start with an important research article in the May issue of The Lancet Neurology. This concerns the ISAT study. And this is no stranger to The Lancet journals, because back in 2002, The Lancet Weekly Journal published the ISAT study. And this month, The Lancet Neurology publishes important long-term follow-up data. Can you remind us what ISAT is and what the controversy is around this issue? Well, the discussion is still ongoing on how patients with rupture aneurysms should be managed. Some neurosurgeons favor endovascular treatment but others think that clipping is, if not better than coiling, at least as safe and beneficial. The comparison of coiling versus clipping has been investigated by the ISAT trial, and the initial findings were indeed reported in The Lancet in the 2002. And what did the 2002 Lancet study conclude? Mortality was lower in patients managed by coiling rather than in those treated by clipping, and those treated by coiling had better clinical outcomes. These were the findings after one year of follow-up. The aim of the current study was to assess the long-term risk of death, disability and re-bleeding after the patients in the trial had been followed up for a minimum of six years. The report on this May issue describes these very much awaited long-term outcomes of the ISA trial. These investigators conclude that the risk of death at five years was still lower for those managed with endovascular treatment. However, choline was associated with a slightly higher risk of recurrent bleeding. So are these results definite now, Elena? Is coiling definitely the way that these patients should be managed, do you think? Well, that's quite a difficult question, Richard. And I'd like to invite our readers to check up the report and to decide that by themselves. These are robust data from a large and well-designed trial, but technical improvements in neurosurgery are happening at swift pace, and they might change management strategies substantially. And you publish alongside the ISAT follow-up data here, a reflection and reaction, a commentary alongside it. What are the commentators saying? Well, in a link commentary, Joseph Broderick provides what I think is a very balanced summary of the findings and remarks a very important point. The improvement in neurological function of all patients the longer they survive after their initial treatment, even though neither clipping nor coiling, unfortunately, eliminates the underlying disease process. Thanks very much, Elena. Let's move on to another research article. This one is looking at the potential of paracetamol involved in the treatment of acute stroke. Elena, what's the thinking behind here? I must admit this was a new one on me. Well, many patients with a stroke present with fever, which is associated with poor clinical outcome. And guidelines for treatment of acute stroke recommend body temperature monitoring, even if there is little evidence from clinical trials on what's the best way to manage fever in these patients. Paracetamol, as you said, is possibly the most commonly used antipyretic drug, and therefore it will be useful to know whether it could improve clinical outcomes in these patients. Can you just describe briefly the methodology and, and the key results here? This was a multicenter, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial in which patients with ischemic stroke or intracerebral hemorrhage were randomly assigned either high-dose paracetamol treatment or placebo treatment within 12 hours of symptom onset. The primary outcome was improvement at three months follow-up, as measured by the modified ranking scale. And unfortunately, the findings do not support the use of paracetamol in these patients. 
I think I'm correct in saying after that there was some post hoc analysis, wasn't there, to see whether paracetamol could actually be useful in a, in a subpopulation of stroke patients? That's right, Richard. In a post hoc analysis of patients that had a baseline body temperature of 37 to 39 degrees, the paracetamol treatment was indeed associated with improved outcomes. But what happens next? More research in this area? Or do you think, in terms of clinical management, paracetamol will continue to be used on occasions because I understand it is often used, isn't it? I think that this trial illustrates the many difficulties that clinical researchers face when funding is scarce. This is the first phase three randomized trial of temperature reduction in acute stroke. The trial intended to recruit 2,500 patients, but the available financial resources were only enough to include 1,400. And although the investigators tried to overcome that by using a different statistical approach, these findings will require confirmation in another study. And what about the line from the authors of the reflection and reaction comment? In a link commentary, Scott Kastner's opinion is that given that we know that paracetamol is safe and will lower high temperatures in patients with a stroke, efforts may be better focused on more promising potential treatments of acute stroke. And let's conclude briefly with a review, and this concerns autoimmune myasthenia gravis. Some definitions first of all, please, Elena. What is this disorder? Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune neuromuscular disease characterized by weakness involving specific muscle groups. It is caused, in most cases, by autoantibodies against the acetylcholinesterase receptor, the protein that binds acetylcholine at the postsynaptic sites in the neuromuscular junction. What triggers this immunological dysregulation is unknown, but more and more evidence points towards the thymus gland, actually. This article is a very comprehensive account that not only covers the epidemiology and explains the pathogenesis of the disease, but also details the spectrum of clinical presentations and provides an update on current therapeutic strategies. And would you say, Elena, overall the authors point to areas of optimism for managing this neurological disorder? They do point indeed, and they have good reasons for that. The more we learn about the immunological basis of this disease, the higher the chances for accurate diagnosis and specific treatment for the different disease subtypes. It's a very practical article and includes a panel listing the medications that might exacerbate the disease and very practical flowcharts both for differential diagnosis and for treatment options. So I would really recommend our readers to check it out. Those were some of the highlights from the May issue of the Lancet Neurology. More details, obviously, in the issue and here online on thelancet.com. Just to say many thanks to Elena for joining us for this month's podcast. Thanks, Elena. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hasta luego.